Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Yes, Miss Stockman. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jen Stockman. falling off of it and then I would I would come up with scenarios of what I would do like I would have a plan A and a plan B and most of the time the plan that won was just laughing I'll I'll just start fake laughing until I can get back up on the stage so this this is way less of an issue if I if I tumble off I, I can almost hold my husband's hand as I preach the gospel this is great We're right here. We're just having a cup of coffee. (laughs) Okay, let's pray. (laughs) We love you, Jesus. (laughs) We love you. We love you, Holy Spirit. We love you, Father. And we... We're so impressed with you. We're so impressed by you. You're the one place that that we can't help but give ourselves to you. It's nearly impossible in your relentless love to not just surrender. And what a happy home we have in you. What a happy dwelling place we've found in the heart of God. What a happy place to have a room in your house. And, and we've come tonight just to say we, we want to live inside of your happiness all our days. That in your right hand there are pleasures forever. And we say tonight we've come to drink from that well. That there's pleasure forever in your right hand. (laughs) Normally hands are just boring objects that are useful. And your hand is an unending well of pleasure. (laughs) That's wild. We love you, Jesus. And I just love you, Holy Spirit. And we, we love to make room for you in this place. And I, I love the honor of getting to see your heart for your people. I love the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that lives on the inside of me. And I love the way that you come upon me for the sake of your people. And I honor your presence I cherish your presence here in this place. And what a terrible thing to preach the gospel without you. (laughs) What a terrible thing to minister without you. 
So we just, we just make room for you tonight, and we just yield, giving you the highest authority we know how to give. We love you, Holy Spirit. You make everything beautiful. You make the highest mountains low. You make the greatest expanses seem so narrow. And so we just welcome you tonight, Holy Spirit. We love you. Amen. Amen, you guys. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to talk out of Daniel 3 tonight about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I have a little brother who's eight years younger than me. And I used to tell him this story, and I, I would make fun voices for Nebuchadnezzar and, and great noises for all the instruments. But I'm going to hold back. I'm going to hold back. I'm going to hold back tonight on that part, okay? So chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth, breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear... The sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of all of those instruments, every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the story goes on, like we know, that um, there were some tattletales. And they came before Nebuchadnezzar and said, there are, cer there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then in furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And, you know, I've just been lingering in this story for the last few weeks. And I can't help but ask, what, what did these men have going on in the inside of them that the entire culture was bowing before this, you know, 90-foot statue, and these men didn't, 
didn't bow. Like, I, I just want to take a peek on their insides and say, what was happening in there? That, that level of courage. And the, these men were between 13 to 20. I mean, can you imagine a 13-year-old standing when everyone else is bowing, um, knowing that a fiery furnace is on the other side? And, you know, the back, the back story that starts in chapter 1 with King Nebuchadnezzar um, taking over Jerusalem. So these, these men, if, if, we, if we look in chapter 1, it says that um, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And he placed the vessels from the treasury um, as it, he placed them in, in his God's treasury as like a champion, like my gods defeated your gods, Jerusalem, was basically what he was saying. My, my gods are mightier than yours, and now your holy vessels are coming into my sanctuary as trophies of what my gods have defeated. And then um, he went on to um, take from the royal family and from of nobility, youth without blemish, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place and to teach them literature and language. And the king assigned them daily portions of food that the king ate and wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And he went on to change their names. And so these, this is, this is the history. If these boys are 13, just because it's so much funner to try to picture these boys being 13. Their frontal lobe isn't even like halfway developed scientifically. And they, they, they are picked from the royal family, from the lineage. Out of everyone that was killed, there were, there were several of them. There were youth that were picked. And, you know, that word royal family um, means the seed of the kingdom. And these young, promising men were the hope of Jerusalem's future. They were the seed of the kingdom of God advancing, the kingdom of the true God. And Nebuchadnezzar was intentionally drafting them in to treat them like sons. These are things fathers do. Fathers give you a name. Fathers give you food from their table. Fathers take your education personally. And Nebuchadnezzar was sending a loud message. We're going we're gonna to cut off every part of their culture. We're going to cut off all of their lineage, all of their inheritance from generations of fathers who have been passing down the wealth of who the great I am is. And Nebuchadnezzar says, we're going to cut all of that off. And I'm going to invite them to my table. I'm going to educate them. And I'm going to give them a new name. And, you know, the names that he gave them, he called um, Hananiah. Hananiah means beloved by the Lord. <laughs> beloved by the Lord. And somewhere, you know, it, it said in the commentary that these boys more than likely came because they're from royal descent, were in the lineage of David. 
So we have sons of David, the man after the heart of God, who show up as the seed of the kingdom, that the, the lineage of David would continue through them. And Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar changes his name from beloved by the Lord to some ridiculous sun god thing. And, and Mishael, his, his, his name means who is as God? <laughs> who is as God? His fathers intentionally every day were prophesying over Mishael. There's no one like your God. Mishael, come in here. There's no one like your God. Over and over and over for 13 years, speaking into his identity. There's no one like your God. And Azariah, his name means the Lord is my help. The Lord is my help. Your, your God is your source. This is still true today, all these years later. Whoever is supplying your life source is your God. Whoever is your source of joy, whatever is your source of joy, is your God. Wherever your source of hope is coming from, that's your God. Whatever your source of provision, your well-being, that's your God. And, you know, Azariah had a name that every day it was being prophesied over him. Your God is your source. Your God is your rescuer. Your God is your champion. And, you know, Deuteronomy 6 talks about how the Lord commanded that you would talk to your sons and his sons when you're walking on the way. When you're, when you're walking on the street, remind them who I am. When you're sitting down at dinner, remind them who I am. When you wake up in the morning, talk about me. When you go to bed at night, remind them they're the beloved of the Lord. That, that, that the, the commandments from Moses would echo through the generations and it wouldn't get fuzzy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Don't compromise, son. Your God is true. And they, you know, they were living in, in these names, living in the identity of the true God. And Nebuchadnezzar shows up with the motive of crushing the seed of the kingdom. And, you know, Daniel, but he's like the leader of the pack. You know, but he's not in this story, but he, he's, it's fitting that he's the leader of the pack, you know. And it says they decide right out the gate, I'm not going to eat the king's food. <laughs> you can call me different names. I'll, I'll learn what you want me to learn, but I'm not going to eat your food. And, you know, as I was just diving into it, there's many different reasons why they didn't eat his food. But the one that just burst in my heart was culturally, when you sat down at the table to dine with the same food someone was eating, you were saying, my God is your God. My ways are your ways. It's the heart of fellowship at the table. And they were making a statement. They were saying, I can serve you without fellowshipping with you. I can serve you without entangling my heart with what is not pure. I can serve you. I can be 
enemies of other gods. And right out the gate, it was the little decisions that they were making to stay pure before their God, their inside world. They didn't just show up before a 90-foot statue and decide that day, I'm not going to bow. There is no such thing as big faithfulness. <laughs> it's only little. There is only little faithfulness. In the parable, the famous parable about faithfulness, the master comes back and says, you have been faithful in very little. <laughs> the heart of faithfulness is always very little. We, we, we can't just show up with big faithfulness. There's no such thing. There's every single day when we're walking on the road, when we're sitting at the table, when we go to bed at night, when we wake up in the morning, love the Lord your God without compromise, with your whole heart, with your whole mind, with all your strength. And, you know, they were able to stand when everyone else was bowing culturally. And, you know, I, I've just been so moved as I've just been lingering in this story that, you know, the, the religious spirit, because, you know, today we're not fighting Nebuchadnezzar's. Our, our war is no longer with flesh and blood. We are, we are fighting the principalities that wrap themselves around people. We're fighting the principalities that take strongholds over regions. We, we have been actually commissioned into darkness. Like we have our finest hour as light when it's very dark. And that our destiny is to be able to be inserted into toxic environments, into cultures that don't believe how we believe, into nations who are on a downhill slope, into all kinds of impurity, into all kinds of idol worship that have nothing to do with our God. I can, I don't know, I can wake up and think of a few exciting toxic environments that we could perhaps be on the brink of history, that this is our moment. This is our Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego moment. And, you know, the religious spirit, they didn't show up and begin making picket signs around the 90-foot statue. You know, they, they had to be told on. That, that they, that they were, were refusing to bow. And they weren't becoming famous for what they hated. They were becoming famous for who they loved. And, you know, the religious spirit is a tricky little thing that, that says you need to be famous for what you're against if you're really going to live a life of purity. <laughs> but, but this is the thing. The religious spirit also would like to say, gosh, it's just music for a couple minutes. I mean, it's really not that big of a deal. It, it's just a piece of meat. Just bless it and don't worship God in your heart. You know, just tiptoe around the issues and culture that your God isn't okay with. You know, just tiptoe. Just, just maybe do like a half a bow. Like a half a bow, you know? There's a half a bow anointing, I'm sure, reserved for such a time as this. Just give half half your life. Can you just give half your life? How are you going to serve Nebuchadnezzar if you're dead? How are you going to help darkness if you're in a 
it, we're deceived. <laughs> Just as much as when we pick up a picket sign. And religion, the goal of religion is to define your standing by the outside of the cup. Whether it's good or it's bad, it doesn't matter. It says, show me your fruit. Oh, so you can drink beer? Oh, you must not be religious. No, no. It doesn't work like that. Like, oh, so you read your Bible every day? That's so religious. You know, like when, when reading our Bible becomes religious, we have a problem. <laughs> and when reading your Bible gives you more access to the presence of God, we have a problem. It is, it is looking at the outside of your life and making a list and saying, what qualifies you and what doesn't qualify you to stand in the presence of the living God? And it's all a big trick to distract us from the wonder of Jesus. Because the biggest thing that the religious Spirit has come to steal, kill, and destroy is your communion with Jesus, is your dependency on Jesus, that I have zero access. I can't fast enough. I can't pray enough. I can't keep enough law. I can't keep enough ritual to have access to his presence. I can't cuss enough. I can't drink enough. I can't go to those certain bars. I can't do any of that to prove that I'm free. It's all a big trick. There's one man who came to prove that you're free. And our freedom has to hang on vulnerability to his nature and nothing else. And it's a risky business. <laughs> on my best day, it's, you know, Michael Maiden's definition of grace is grace is Jesus plus nothing. On my best day, I was saved by grace. That's Jesus plus nothing. And on my worst day, I was saved by grace. And that's Jesus plus nothing. And, you know, Graham Cook's definition of grace is the empowering presence of God to become who he says you you are. And you know what's so beautiful about this story is this is a story of identity. These boys had a name from their father and they knew what it was. <laughs> they, you know, they weren't disciplining themselves into righteousness. They had a name. They had a lineage. They had a love that was compelling them. And we know love was compelling them because this story without love never would have made it in the book. We know that from Corinthians. It says you can give your body to be burned, which they did. But if there's not love there, <laughs> sorry if I ruined the story. <laughs> If there's, if there's not love there, it means nothing. So when we let scripture interpret itself, we know there was love there. They were in love. And they knew who they were. And, you know, as, as the story goes on, they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And the, the great thing about this is, Right before they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar, 
their friend Daniel. You know, he saves everybody's lives, basically, because they were all going to die if a magician (laughs) couldn't tell the king what his dream was and interpret it. So Daniel had just saved everyone's lives, and of course, Nebuchadnezzar is in awe. And we're, we're talking about a wicked king. We're talking about massive amounts of perversion. You know, Jeremiah tells a story about him that he brutally killed another king's son. And then right when he was done, he gouged. Sorry about the children. He gouged out the king's eyes so that his son's death was the last thing that king saw. Like that is that is deep-seated perverted evil. And when we cross it over, we're not we're not we're not, we're prophetically looking at demonic spirits that that um that it is our destiny to trample under our foot through our intimacy with Jesus. So it's a prophetic picture of of who we are to be in our culture, in our society. And you know, the what's funny to me is that Daniel made a request of the king to promote his friends. And he said, hey, I have these friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he, he like slips their name on the table. And so followed right by their new title is them standing, looking King Nebuchadnezzar in the eyes, saying, and he's saying, is this true? And, you know, it's always just a really good opportunity. Like, am I awesome because my friends are awesome? Like, or am I awesome all by myself? <laughs> you know, and <laughs> am I, you know, do I have my own fire? Or am I just, like, built my tent around a big bonfire that everybody else puts wood on? <laughs> and you don't really know until your friend pushes you out there and says, hey, you got this. <laughs> And so they're standing before Nebuchadnezzar, and and what an honor to your God to hear what they were tattled on for. They pay no attention to you. They, They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Like, oh, if you're going to hear the enemy say anything about your life as a tattletale, he would say that. They pay no attention to other gods. These people cannot be distracted. They are in undivided devotion to their God. No matter how loud the music, no matter how tall the statue, these guys won't be moved. And what, what an honor. What an honor and a tribute to the reality of their God. Listen, it's not normal to be easily distracted from the wonder of Jesus. <laughs> I mean, when he walks in the room, it's, it is hard to think about anything else, you know? And, you know, what you're concerned about reveals who your God is, <laughs> you know? And, you know, I started out this year, I heard Graham Cook on a message say, I don't remember the last time I worried. And I think it's been like 20 years since I worried. And I mean, it was like 
a bomb got dropped in my kitchen on my dirty floors that I was kitchen. Like, you don't remember the last time you worried? Like, I got to back up this truck and just think a minute. So I decided right out the gate, I'm going to make a New Year's resolution. I will not worry this year. 2017, I am not going to worry. And so it was like mid-January. And... <laughs> about people I love and adore. And I thought, this surely qualifies as worry material, <laughs> you know? Like, I'm like, I don't, like my unconscious drive was worry. Like I had to, I had to stop and think like, I remember I said I wasn't gonna worry, but it doesn't feel like there's any other options on the table. When, when terrible things happen, the music starts playing and the, the giant 90 feet tall is screaming at you and everybody else is bowing to worry as that's what love does. And before I know it, I'm, I'm on my face worshiping worry. And I, I, I remember I tried for like two days to not be wooed by the music. And so I, I ended up just getting depressed. And I thought, okay, well, maybe love gets depressed. And so, like, two more days of getting depressed, I'm like, surely this, this can't be a good alternative. I'd probably rather worry. And I, I, I just, you know, I've just been on this journey because now it's June. You know, that's six months. I got six months left. It's the middle marker. And, you know, I've just been learning so much, you know, about the nature of the Father. And, you know, Jen, what you worry about reveals who you think I am. And, and when you worry, there's a deficit in your Father. You think your father is poor. If you're worried about money, it's really just pointing, I have a poor father. He lives in lack. When you're, when you're worried about people, you're thinking your compassion is bigger than mine. And your father has a def deficiency in compassion. And you gotta, this, this is not a journey about trying not to worry. Because the more you tr try to stop worrying, the bigger the worry grows. This is a journey into my heart. Because when you can see the Father in his fullness, there's nothing to worry about. And, you know, there, there is no lack in our Father. There was no worry in the nature of Jesus. Not one moment of one day. And, and you know, he said... You know, Jen, I remember one day I just dramatically, I was worried about my children. And I dramatically threw myself on the bed. I felt like I was in a movie, but I was stuck in the movie because this is my life. And I threw myself on the bed. And I thought, I can't do this for 20 more years. Oh, my gosh. You know, and because it's love, a fierce love worries. That's like what all of culture says. If you love, you wear the uniform of worry. You get up every day. You put on your badge. I love you. I've been worrying about you for 10 years. <laughs> and the music is wooing us in the background. And, you know, he said, I'm the best father this world has ever seen. And I've never worried 
about you one day of your life. <laughs> and, you know, we've got to let go of what's culturally normal and accept it in our lives as normal. Even, even when it's culturally normal in the Christian life, followers of Jesus do not worry <laughs> because he said, come to me when you're heavy laden, when you're burdened, I will be your rest. And if it's not normal in the life of Jesus, we have to stop giving ourselves permission to live normal. I'm going to fall when the music starts to play because everybody else is falling. That's not normal. That is not normal as a follower of Jesus. And, you know, I, I've just been feeling this fresh repentance in my own life. Show me everything that's not normal, Jesus. Just like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let me peek inside of their soul and see what normal is. It's normal to not bow. It's normal to trust your father. It's normal to not have a care in the world because of who our father is. And, you know, when they, when Nebuchadnezzar, he starts out as those boys are just looking him in the face. And he says, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, that when I play all the music and everyone else starts to bow, is it true that you don't bow? And, and, and he says, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And this is Michelle's very name. Who is like your God? And this is a very, this is an attack on his very identity. He's mocking his name. Who is your God? And Michelle's like, my identity is about to show you who my God is. My identity, my name, Michelle, is prophesying without using words who my God is. And, you know, their response is so convicting because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it be, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And, you know, I just love that they said we have no need to explain ourselves to you we don't actually answer to you Nebuchadnezzar we've been serving you but but you've never been our God we've been serving you we've, we have been being faithful to our assignment but never once when we sat down at the king's table we put a knife to our throat, lest we desire his delicacies, lest we be just lured by the fear and the intimidation. You are not our God, Nebuchadnezzar. And you know, they had a, a relentless trust in the nature of their God. And they, they did not doubt who their God 
was that he said, even if he doesn't deliver us, we will not change the subject. And, you know, this, this just causes my heart to be undone. That relentless trust in the nature of God is our lineage. This is our heritage. This is the seed of the kingdom. That he is good and he is faithful. And we're not, we're not protecting ourselves from evil. We're not protecting ourselves from this wicked king. You know, there's a psalm. Psalm 140 that says, you wrap yourself around me to protect me. You know that sometimes when we think of the armor of God, we think of huge steel plates just bordering us. You know, but, but our posture is defenseless because we are trusting in a person to protect us. We are trusting. It, it takes massive amounts of vulnerability to trust a person over a big old metal shield. If, if you feel unsure about the person's motive towards you, but you know, if you feel sure and settled, you would way rather have the person of God wrapping himself around you. We see it over and over again in the Psalms. Your presence is my shield. Your favor is a shield around me. In the day of battle, your presence protects me. This is Old Testament saints who got it. That it's the presence of God who, that, that is protecting us. And, and these boys, 13 years old, were depending on and trusting in the presence of God. And even if he doesn't show up in the way we expect him to show up, you will find faith in me. And, you know, Jesus said, when I return upon the earth, will I find faith? And, you know, no matter where we're at in our story, he is looking for faith. He's looking for, I believe in my God. I believe in him. And, you know, they, they get all mad, you know, of course. It says the expression of his face was changed. <laughs> I, remember, I remember this one time I was trying to get this seatbelt in between two car seats in like a tiny back seat. This is a tiny rabbit trail for all the moms out there. And I'm like trying so hard. And Kylie was probably like three at the time. She's like, mom, what happened to your face? <laughs> so, uh, so the furnace is heated, heated, heated. And the guy, the mighty man that was taking them to the furnace um, died because the flame was so hot. And if you can just, you can just imagine the boys at this point, they bind them up with all their coats, with all their hats. It's like so fast they're being thrown into this furnace. And you could just imagine this must be the, but even if he doesn't. You know, like, the guy that was trying to throw us in the fire just combusted into flames. So I'm thinking it's probably safe to say the rest of the story is, but if, if he doesn't, we're not changing our mind. They don't even get pushed in. It says they, they just fell 
because the guy died right there because it was so hot. <laughs> and, you know, when Nebuchadnezzar, you know, they, Nebuchadnezzar ends up astonished because there is a son of the gods, a fourth man, walking inside the furnace. And, you know, the, the commentary says this is another occurrence where Jesus himself steps into history and shows up for his boys, you know, and it just feels like such a prophetic picture that when we would see generations later, he would fall. He would fall in a yielded surrender, just like these boys, and he would commit his spirit to the Father. It says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And, you know, the, when Shadrach, Meshach, and when Nebuchadnezzar is freaking out, one of the things he says is, blessed the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. And, you know, even Nebuchadnezzar was able to define they were living a yielded life. And this is what Jesus came to walk the earth to show us. A yielded life, yielded to the Father, yielded to the Holy Spirit. That he came, you know, it says Nebuchadnezzar had to call them out of the furnace. They were walking in the furnace. Four men were taking a walk in the furnace. I, I feel like when Jesus showed up, I'd be like, let's get out of here, you know? And Nebuchadnezzar had to call to them in the furnace to come out. And, you know, the places that Jesus likes to take walks is wild, you know? And we see this in James. When James says, Arabelle just memorized this for school. Count it all joy, my brothers. We say, how much joy? All joy. When you face trials of various kinds. Because we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness is going to make sure that you're complete. Not lacking anything. And you know, their identity was walking around in a furnace with Jesus himself. And you know, one of my favorite hymns says he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the beloved of God was walking around in the furnace. And I, I could just imagine Jesus, Jesus saying, there's my beloved. My beloved. Who is like your God? Who is like your God? Who is a help like me? Come on, boys, tell me. And, you know, the beloved of God was walking inside of the furnace with Jesus himself. And, you know, so just to, to close up, my favorite part is at the end, it says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were promoted in the king's kingdom. And, and it says, he, he basically, Nebuchadnezzar, this intensely wicked man, begins to prophesy about the future of the seed of this kingdom. This kingdom, he thought he could wipe 
Nebuchadnezzar puts on a spirit of prophecy and begins to prophesy about this kingdom and says, how great are, are his signs, how mighty his work. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And, you know, this is, this is 1 Peter 1.23, that you have been born again of an incorruptible seed. You cannot annihilate this seed. No matter how wicked the culture, no matter how twisted the king, no matter how dark the hour, are impressed. we have to be impressed with this seed. This seed came through the voice of the Father, Peter said. What is he calling you? What is the word of God saying, over your life because Nebuchadnezzar is trying to name you. The culture of this world is trying to give you a name. He's trying to educate you. He's, he's trying to annihilate your lineage that our fathers have fought for. And this is our moment to arise and shine and see our light has come. And inside of me, inside of you is an incorruptible seed. You cannot squash this out. Generations are going to testify of the greatness of our God because of the seed that is alive in us. And this is the purpose of promotion, that the seed in you would gain momentum, that the seed in you would gain momentum to set captives free. This isn't a battle against any person. This is love. This is love that my heart burns, that you would be set free. You know, the, the third closing is this. I, I read this thing on Facebook that totally freaked me out. And I found out it was just a fable, but it's still a great preaching point, so I'm still going to tell it. So this woman, is this story about this woman who had a pet snake, a pet python, a huge snake. And suddenly the snake stopped eating and <laughs> at night was getting super cuddly. Did anybody read this story? Ah! Was getting super cuddly. And just stretching itself out and cuddling with its owner. And, the, the, you know, the, the lady thought, this snake is being so weird. And she took it to the vet. And the vet said, oh, this snake is not actually sick or just especially affectionate. This snake is measuring you for its next meal. And I'm, I'm like, ah! You know, and... And this, this is the thing, when we don't realize what we are laying in bed with. In this story, what are you, what, what table are you eating at? It's not, it's not just about, you know, a choice of food. It's about where is your intimacy? Because, you know, there is an entire generation that is laying in bed with a snake that has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And, and it, is, it is our assignment to expose that thing for what it is. Jesus came to give life and to give it abundantly and to set captives free. To see that is not your friend. Fear is not your friend. Perversion is not your friend. 
different name. And, and it's a beautiful name. So, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.